Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore. I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined on this afternoon's show by Imran Ahmed, the founder, CEO and editor-in-chief of Business of Fashion, which is perhaps the most authoritative voice in the entire fashion industry. Imran started the company back in London in 2007 from his sofa, but he's since grown it into a media powerhouse that employs more than 100 people and is sometimes described as the economist of fashion. We spoke about all sorts of things in this very, very interesting episode about why you should always look for your global niche, about how 10 days on a silent retreat changed Imran's life forever, why his dream is to slam dunk like Michael Jordan, I think that's all of our dreams these days, and how the high street can save itself in the current crisis. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels, not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you, now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. How have you been then the last few months? It's been okay, you know. Um, I think every, some people are calling it the Corona Coaster. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think like everyone, really, I've gone through phases. And there's yeah. been some ups and downs and unexpected surprises. And, and then, you know, the odd heat wave uh, to keep you <laughs> on your toes. So, no, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm still grateful to still be healthy, of course. And my family and friends and everyone are are still doing okay. So what surprises have you had? You mentioned a few surprises in there. What's popped up? Oh, surprises. Um, I don't know if I want to tell you my surprises. They're more personal, <laughs> but you know, just, I think when you spend time as we all are in the current context, even the littlest things can bring, bring a, a, a sense of surprise. Right. So yeah. I was, I I'll be, I'll tell you one surprise, which is I kind of, um, begrudgingly planned a holiday in the UK because I couldn't leave and go to any other countries for a variety of reasons. Um, and I actually enjoyed so much my holiday here in the UK because I've never considered it a holiday spot. So now I've planned another UK holiday Wow! going up to, to Scotland. So yeah, it's been, you know, I'm surprised because I was, one, I was definitely one of those people that when I left London, I was usually leaving the UK, you know, so I'm, I'm, it's been surprising how much I've enjoyed. You know, and London's just been amazing to be in this here at this time. Um, I've really appreciated London so much more as a city because I was one of those people who was in and out all the time. But you know, I've been taking long walks in the park and really enjoying the city. Where was your first UK holiday then? The, the, the previous it was up one. in Oxfordshire. It was in Oxfordshire. Yeah. Well, then we've got a natural bond here because I am an Oxfordshire boy. Oh, really? And, and I'm should... now offended you hadn't 
hadn't considered it sooner. Where, whereabouts in Oxfordshire were you? Soho Farmhouse, probably. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was great. You know, we, we hold an event there every year. So I've only ever been there really like with work stress. And yeah. um, we spend so much time just making everything happen. But, you know, I just really got to enjoy it. And it's so spaced out. And um, it was just really, really very well executed and a really wonderful break. And I properly got to disconnect. So it didn't matter that I wasn't somewhere far away. You know, I really got a break, which I'm grateful for. I'm very glad to hear it. Because from what I remember from you, you're not someone who gives yourself lots of time off. Would you say you're a workaholic or is that going too far? I think that goes too far. Um, I think there's phases of my career where I've, you know, worked very, very hard. Um, But especially in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years, I've spent a lot more energy trying to find that right balance mm-hmm. where work doesn't just take over everything. And yeah. there's so many other things in my life that I want to enjoy. And so I, um, I'm not a workaholic, but I, I definitely, you know, have a very, very engaged and dedicated focus on, on, on my work because I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but I also know when I need to stop. I think we all need to learn that. I think we have in the last few months. Mm-hmm. I think everything's chilled out a bit. So let's go back to the start of your career then. What were you like as a child? Were you very entrepreneurial? Were you, I seem to remember you saying you were an actor or at least a budding actor on the boards at school. Well, yeah. I mean, I studied, I started studying uh, drama and public speaking in Canada in grade five, which I think maybe makes me eight years old or nine years old at the time. So um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that I, you know, planned to do. Just one of the, one of my teachers suggested it to my parents and they followed the advice and lo and behold, there was a little performer in there. Um, And, you know, I never, I didn't end up pursuing it professionally as a career, um, but it really helped me so much with confidence because when you're, that age and you're on stage and you're performing in front of people. I'm grateful for that experience now because they say that people's worst fear is public speaking. Yeah. And, you know, I really enjoy it. You know, it's like part of what I love. So if that training in and of itself, if that's the only thing that it helped me with was just build the confidence to, to kind of engage with, you know, groups of people in a, in a, in a public space. Yeah of have conversations like that's just a really big part of what I do now even so yeah I'm grateful for that were you a triple threat were you singing and dancing as well there was singing okay. and and there was dancing but like not professionally trained dancing Fine. so it was like musical theater right the, yeah jazz hands and show tunes and things like that exactly lots of lots of jazz hands and lots of different costume changes <laughs> yeah I can imagine what was your starring role what was the biggest the biggest role you ever had? Well, there were a few. Like, I always got cast as, like, the mischievous little character with lots of energy on stage because okay. that's kind of how I am in real life. So, I, you know, I played the Mad Hatter and I played Puck. Yeah. And I played, um, in, in at business school, I played this, like, French revolutionary. You know, I always play this, like, you know, sprightly little character that you know yeah quite dramatic on stage kind of came naturally to me 
I'm sure there's some psychology there about you then becoming an upstart entrepreneur. Maybe, Maybe. we'll dig into that. Maybe. And so after school, you went to McGill in Canada, yeah. Yeah. prestigious university, and then it was HBS, Harvard Business School. Do you say HBS? Is that what graduates say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess so. People call it yeah. HBS. Okay. I thought it might be the wrong lingo. And then McKinsey, yeah. obviously, which is very prestigious. Yeah. It is the golden path of, uh, of a kind of serious, successful professional in, uh, in North America. Did you like to map things out beforehand? Are you very, was that always the kind of dream to do that kind of thing? Honestly, no. Um, you know, those are like really famous names, you know, but at the base, most basic level, they're just a place to go to school and a place to yeah. work. And what I really took away from those experiences were, you know, really close relationships and opportunity to kind of discover or further discover my interests and my values and, and, you know, and my own talents and, 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 and the way I like to express myself, which enables me to do the work I do today. And by no means was it like a foregone conclusion that I would go to those places. I mean, you know, back when I was, before I got to McGill, I'd, I'd never even heard of the career management consulting. Like I didn't know what that was. That was only something I learned about because I had the you know privilege of attending, you know, a university like McGill. And then when you're you're at consulting firms, then it really builds your confidence about, well, maybe I should think about an MBA. And you know, at 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 Deloitte, um, which is the first consulting firm I worked at, you know, they really coached us on like how to apply to business school. And so, you know, I think it's easy when you look backwards to kind of make sense of how it all fits together. But when you're going through it, like every, every big step was like a next big thing and you didn't know yeah. if you were going to get there. So like I, it wasn't mapped out in any way. No. Do you know the, the writer Rory Sutherland, the kind of economist, he's the vice president at Ogilvy, the advertising agency. Okay. He also writes a lot about kind of behavioral change and stuff. He says that the thing you're buying when you go to Harvard or Oxford is the peer group that's what you're paying for not really the education or the certificate anymore what you're buying is the people you're at school with did you learn a lot by osmosis off the people who are who are around you i don't know if it's learning by osmosis mm. it's learning through conversation yeah and um both mcgill and hbs and mckinsey for that matter are really global places there you know people are from all over the world so those you you really learn to appreciate you know the world in a way that you could never do if you weren't exposed to all of those places. So like you know I had a friend in McGill who who was from Turkey. Like I didn't know anyone from Turkey at eighteen years old because I grew up in Calgary. You know, and like there, yeah. I hadn't met any Turkish people in Calgary. So um, there's that. But then it's certainly true that you know those people, those relationships are you're the strongest thing you take away. But not because they're like it's like that, you know, dreaded business word network. Yeah. It's because those are the people who like advise you and encourage you and support you and are there with you as you go through your own journey. And so all of our all of our stories got intertwined for those two years at, at, at business school. And then you go out into the world and and you find that that intertwining of your lives and your experiences with all of these really you know, talented and smart and nice people, you know, that's something you take with you, you know, I think till your very, you know, very last days on, on earth. Like those are the kinds of relationships 
that I, I'm lucky to have from university and, and business school. So it, it's definitely the main thing you take away. Yeah. But maybe not for the reasons that that gentleman whose <laughs> name you mentioned um, said it, but mostly because, you know, it's, it's really motivating to be around people who have shared interests and who are driven and, you know, who are interested in the world and curious because that brings, that brings out those same traits in you. You know, it yeah. encourages you to kind of look further and deeper. So after Harvard, it was McKinsey. Is that the right order? Yeah. Yeah. And McKinsey is obviously a famous management consultant. And the view a lot of us have of consultants, I think, is scary people who come in when a company is dying or people need to be laid off or big cuts need to be made and they come in in their slick suits and then... Uh, and then jump out a second, <laughs> the second people start crying. Is that, uh, is that a fair representation? I sense it's probably not. Um, there are projects like that. You know, there are, you know, pieces of work that clients assign to consultants to come in and cut costs mm. and to, you know, rationalize processes and to do um, rounds of layoffs and understand how they should reorganize their teams. That does exist, but... That's by far uh, not the only kind of work that you know consulting firms do. And the most exciting projects are actually the ones which the question is more of an opportunity. And you know, yeah. I was lucky to work on projects like that. I never worked on a cost-cutting project during my entire career in management consulting where we were like letting people go. A, a lot of my work was around finding new market opportunities. It was about you know uh, organizing. New, two teams from two separate companies together that were that were merging. Uh, mm. It was about like um, finding optimization in the mortgage approval process in a okay. South African bank. It was working yeah. with like an Australian um, real estate giant looking to go international. So it was of a, a huge variety of things, and most of it was about well, how do I seize this opportunity? And mm. um, I'm lucky that I. I worked on projects like that because not everyone, you know, had that, but you know, I don't think it's a necessarily a full representation. Let me put it okay. that way. That's very fair. So no. you're going into all these different companies and all these different countries and you're, I guess, kind of accumulating knowledge and taking little bits from here and there. Did you ever think at that point, maybe you, you might start a business one day and maybe all oh, this bit will be useful from this, this bank or this bit from this, retailer might suddenly come in useful or were you just kind of doing the job at hand yeah i wasn't really thinking about the actual industry experience i yeah. was having and how that would inform my future career you know one of the challenges that i had actually was that i bounced around a lot between different industries which made it more interesting for me in a way but it meant i wasn't developing a specialization and you know once you get promoted to certain levels in a place like that, you know, they start expecting you to specialize. And as soon as the conversations I was having with my, you know, managers and mentors about specializing, it, it became clear that the kinds of industries that I really was fascinated by, McKinsey didn't really serve those kinds of companies at the time. And the opportunity for me to build a career around an industry that I didn't genuinely have an interest in just felt like not the right path i was also you know i was really interested in the analytics and the problem solving i loved the travel but 
I was also missing that creative spark, you know, the part, yeah. other part of me that I'd left behind in, in Calgary where, you know, I was very, very creative growing up. So I was trying to find a way of like bringing those things together. Yeah. Um, and it, it just became pretty clear that McKinsey wasn't going to be that place. So, you know, I, I left on very good terms and, and, and started focusing my energy on other things. It's quite a bold thing to do to have a kind of dream job that many people would kill for. And also that obviously took a lot of hard work to get to and then decide, actually, this isn't for me because presumably you're getting remunerated quite well. And presumably you had quite a nice lifestyle. Was it a difficult decision to, to chuck that all in? Um, that's a really good question. I, I'd done a lot of you know, personal reflection in the period just before I left. And I'd taken a three-month sabbatical. And I'd really realized it was the time to leave. So I was, you know, I had a very strong conviction in my decision to leave. I think the bigger debate was what was I going to do? Because right. I, I, you know, I'd been offered a job at a big television company to work with their CMO. You know, there were more, still more traditional paths available to me. Um, and then there was something inside me that just realized, like, as we get older in life, it becomes harder and harder for us to take risks. And by that time, I paid off all my student loans from business school. I didn't owe anyone any money. You know, I hadn't taken on a mortgage. And so, from a financial perspective. I was free in a way to go and take a risk. You know, I'd mm. saved up a little bit of money and um, I knew I could always, you know, go back to that more traditional career path later. But the longer I put off trying out something on my own, um, which is, I think, something I always wanted to do deep down inside, um, the harder it would be for me to go and do that thing. So it, it, it just became obvious that the entrepreneurship route was the right one for me. And, and I know you went at that point around that time to a silent retreat, which fascinates yeah. me. What, what yeah. happens on, on silent retreats? Um, and why was it so transformative for, for you personally? Yeah, I mean, that was the turning point in my life. Um, it was the, also the inflection point in my life. So yeah. I turned a corner and changed the trajectory of how I was feeling about you know, my career and, and my personal life and just everything really. And sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom to kind of really reckon with yourself. And through a variety of, um, you know, different conversations I had with, you know, friends and family and even, you know, virtual strangers, I decided to go on this meditation retreat um, and ended up being in South Africa. And it was a silent retreat for 10 days where you can't, you know, talk to anyone, you can't listen to music, you can't write wow. anything down, you can't make eye contact. And you really focus on learning the skill of meditation. And meditation is a skill. It's a tool that we all have, if we want to develop it, to look and find the depth in ourselves, to find, you know, deeper insights about ourselves, but also to, to manage our emotions, to manage stress, and to find, you know, what um, what they call equanimity, which is just, you know, life is basically going to be really crap at times. Um, that's what we kind of learned during this retreat, which is, you know, in a way life is nothing if it isn't crap sometimes, because that's yeah. part of what you need in your life to find your own path. And it's those dark moments that um, can open up, you know, 
light. And for me, that dark moment was really when, you know, lots of light came through because I, I, I was able to spend the time just really thinking about, you know, what I wanted. I was 29 years old and, you know, a bit lost. And I, you know, as you'd said, I, you know, ticked off all those prestige boxes and still feeling really unhappy. So, you know, it was transformative because I left that 10 days with a completely new lease on life, with a new focus area for my career, um, with the conviction to go and talk to my friends and family about, you know, the changes I wanted to make. Yeah. Um, and just, just the inner peace and clarity that, you know, I had, I had found something in, during that time Yeah. that was going to be, you know, the first step of a, what has ended up being a really long journey since then. So it was transformative for all of those reasons. So you, you, you don't basically get any real stimulus for 10 days and then, yeah. then you're kind of set free into the world again. Yeah. What was it like stepping back out into, into South Africa and into your normal life in a way? Well, um, I did it just outside Cape Town, which is a yeah. city I absolutely love. And so I went back to Cape Town. I stayed for a night or two more and kind of reacclimated. They call it re-entry shock because okay. it, it is completely different. And um, I got on a plane and flew to Nairobi uh, to sit down with my parents, you know, and yeah. like my parents have played such an important role in shaping me and who I am. So in a way, they were the first people I wanted to talk to after having gone through this experience. And in a way, I also wanted to say, listen, like you did your jobs. You like gave me every opportunity. Like, look at me. I'm, you know, I'm, I've done all this stuff and you know, now I want to go and take that stuff that you helped me to achieve and you helped me to do. And I want to take that and I want to go run with it and do something I could never have imagined that I don't know where the path is going to lead. And they supported me, you know, and, and my friends supported me and um, people really encouraged me and cheered me on. And that's, you know, that is something I'm forever grateful for because it's those people that, you know, end of the day it's those people in your life that you know back you and give you confidence and yeah you know pick you up when when you've you know fallen down or you know help you out when things are really challenging those are the people that you know i'm you know i'm super grateful to have that is there a micro experience you can have like that silent retreat because obviously it's nice to be able to take 10 days out but what about those moments of anxiety uncertainty when we've got to make big decisions but maybe we've got you know, half a day to think about it, or maybe an overnight. Is a way to tap into that state, do you think? Yeah, especially if you've been trained. I think it's a little bit like riding a bike. So I still practice my meditation, not every single day. And I'll certainly call upon that tool if I am feeling anxiety or if I'm nervous or, you know, if there's something on my mind and I'm trying to work through it. Um, I can call on that tool and it, it really comes back very quickly. And I think the micro moments can happen every day. It can be a minute. You know, yeah. I think there's a lot of experts that say that even if you take just a minute um, to breathe during kind of intervals that you have during your day to reconnect just with that sense of like clarity and, and focus. Yeah. If you can have that in your day, it can really help you. And especially at a time like that, the one that we've been having over these past few months where there's been so much uncertainty and, you know, worry and stress and 
know, the world is in a really challenging place at the moment. I have been so grateful to have a tool I can turn to that helps me, you know, in those micro moments. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, you know, no matter what the world throws at us, you know, I, I can find a way, you know, through the, the, the skills that I have um, and, and, and the tools at my disposal to, to find a way to work through it, no matter how hard it is. Do you encourage it in a, in a professional setting? Is that something you kind of actively suggest to your staff if they come to you with a problem? Do you turn to that and say, listen, here's a, here's a little toolkit for you? Um, I wouldn't go so far as I prescribe it to people. Yeah. A lot of people ask me about it, though. Yeah. Um, they ask me about meditation. I've given presentations to our team to talk them through my experience with meditation. There was a period when we were doing daily meditations in the office actually. Um, and, you know, it's, I think with anything, I think there's a bit of mystery and not stigma, but maybe misconceptions around meditation. And so yeah. like, the more you talk about it with people, the more open minded they are. It's not like a hocus pocus kind of thing. There's some real science behind why it works. And, yeah. you know, these are ancient tools that have been around forever. So um, there's a reason they've stuck around and the science cool. backs that up now. So um, I talk to people about it if they ask me, but I don't, I don't ever want to impose it on anybody. You know, that, that, that's, that's different. Naturally, of course. So let's, let's talk about the business of fashion then. BOF. What do you refer to as BOF? Do you ever call it BOF? Does anyone ever say that? People call it BOF. I personally don't call it BOF. Um, a lot of people in France call it BOF. BOF. And what does buff mean? It's kind of like a shrug. Yeah, in, Fran in, in French, it doesn't have the, like the most positive connotations. Okay. But um, in any case, uh, people in East London seem to call it buff. Right, wow. Um, so, you know, but I I'm happy with people to call it whatever they want as long okay. as they're reading it. As long as they're reading it, you know, they can. But I personally call it BOF for the business of fashion. Fine, that makes sense. We'll, yeah. we'll go with that then. So you, uh, you started out as a blog and you were a complete outsider at that point to the fashion yeah. industry. What drew you to it? Uh, if you hadn't necessarily worked in it before, you'd never kind of designed clothes or been to fashion school. What, what, why were you interested in it? So the blog was something I actually started when I was setting up my first startup coming out of um, McKinsey. And that startup actually was an incubator for young fashion designers. And that startup didn't last longer than eight months. Right. Um, but I was keeping a blog because, um, you know, as I've said, my friends and my family played a big part in this journey that I've taken. And um, it was a really great way of just keeping people up to date and, you know, sharing, you know, posts and images and things that I was experiencing, which were like really different from McKinsey, let me tell you. So, yeah. um, but when the company didn't work out, I, I basically realized I quite enjoyed the the kind of process of like writing things down and, you know, selecting, taking and selecting imagery. Um, and so I reskinned the blog and I called it the business of fashion. The URL was still uberkid.typepad.com. But at the top, okay. it said the business of fashion. It kind of looked like a newspaper as yeah. best as I could fashion a newspaper on my PowerPoint skills. Um, and yeah, that's, you know, it started because of that. And it wasn't, it wasn't really because I thought there was a media company tucked away inside somewhere. It was because I just enjoyed the process and I didn't have a job. And mm. so 
um, it was just a really constructive way to spend my time. And by that point, I developed a real fascination with the fashion industry because, you know, it just struck me that this was an industry that was like a massive global business. And most of the industry, like most of the media didn't really take it seriously. You know, yeah. they, they treated it more as kind of entertainment or, or style, but it wasn't really in the business pages and it wasn't really respected as an industry. Mm. So even now, sometimes when I'm at a non-fashion related event or like a more serious investor conference or a business conference uh, and, you know, people say, what do you do? And I say, I explain that I work in fashion. You, you can kind of see some people's eyes just glaze over because, you know, the industry isn't really respected or recognized widely as a huge global force in culture yeah. and business. And so BOF was a way of kind of telegraphing that different perspective, connecting the creative and the business side of fashion together. And that's, that's why it started, I guess. Was there anything else like it at the time? There were trade publications. Yeah. Um, so here in the UK, there's Drapers. And in France, they have the Journal du Textile. And, and in, in America, they have you know, Women's Wear Daily. Yeah. There really wasn't like a global publication that spoke to all the markets. It was still very much based on the relationships that these historically print publications had in specific geographies where they were present. Did you have insider sources then? I mean, it seems faced with all those people who are so established. How could you ever, I don't know, get the similar scoops or stories? Were you making relationships very early on? I mean, at the beginning, there were no scoops or no. news stories. Yeah. I mean, it was pure analysis from the outside. Um, but, you know, what was really interesting is as soon as I started writing, people just wanted to meet and chat. They were interested in some of the ideas. So I started meeting people because they were interested in talking about the content. Some of those people became, you know, are still team members of BOF today. Some of them are, you know, the clients we work with and some of them are important industry sources. And it just, it, it all happened really, really organically. Um, you can't really plan for anything like that. All of a sudden, you know, people were writing to me from South Korea and Australia and the Middle East asking for expert comment on, you know, some kind of issue in the industry. And it just became really clear that people didn't have a resource that kind of looked at the industry and the way BOF is now very, you know, widely recognized. Yeah. We're kind of exploring, you know, the business of fashion with a global perspective, understanding how you know, key industry forces like technology and consumer values uh, and globalization are, are reshaping the business. And these have become kind of the recurring themes of our analysis for more than a decade now. So all of this was just you know, happening. You know, the iPhone was about to come out when I first yeah. started writing. There's so much change um, that was about to happen. And, you know, not least of which was the 2008 financial crisis when, yeah. you know, compared to now, I think that feels like a, a treat but um you know at the time it was a it was a really serious crisis everyone didn't know if we were going to make it through the other side if all the investment banks were going to fail if the entire financial system was going to collapse like there was all of this stuff going on yeah and it had a huge impact on the industry and that's when people really started coming to bof as a resource to help navigate the industry through um challenging moments um like that the crisis of 2008 but also like like the one we're living through now so that was that was around 2008 
that you started kind of getting more and more traction, I suppose we could say. Is that fair to yeah. say? Yeah. yeah. Who were your first employees then? Who was on the team early on? So uh, I had uh, an assistant who I'm actually seeing for dinner tonight, which is... Oh, lovely. Her name is Emma. And she was kind of the first employee at POF. And yeah. she, she kind of helped me with everything. Assistant's not the right word. She was, um, you know, she helped with content stuff. She helped, you know, manage, you know, lots of inbound media requests. She helped with my calendar. You know, she, she worked on the Daily Digest and, mm. you know, curated stories. I mean, she, she did really everything at the beginning, you know. And we were living on opposite side of London, actually. Um, and we just managed to work it through. And then, um, you know, I'd been working with a, an editor in New York named Vikram, who, you know, he was actually someone I met through the comment section of the website. Oh, wow. He was like, he was leaving like really smart comments. I'm like, who is this guy? You know, there's lots of comments. Um, and then one day we decided to meet for tea and then he started contributing the odd uh, story to the site. And um, by a few years later, he was spending, you know, a day or two a week editing stories. We were only putting out a couple of articles at this stage. So it's, you know, it's really yeah. small operation. And then my best friend from McGill actually joined the business um, just before we raised our funding round in February 2013. And his name is Arsalan. And um, he was kind of like my right hand if there's anything like a co-founder. Yeah, uh, he was it. He had seen BOF grow from my sofa, and he's got a background in in law, so he helped me with the very early contracts. And so, it was um, it was kind of that group of three, and then we we slowly added more and more people over the years. So that was how it yeah. kind of we moved into an office, the four of us on um, in February two thousand thirteen. I love that a proper upstart story. Did you yeah. did you notice the more established players, Women Wear Daily? or even the kind of glossy press, I suppose. Did they start to ape your style or did they start to get scared at any point? Did you notice any changes in their, in their output? I mean, I think um, everyone was really supportive early mm. on. And, you know, we had great engagement and support from other media titles. You know, the New York Times covered us early on. Vogue in many countries has written at length about BOF, you know, same with Elle and... Yeah. Um, other glossy magazines. Um, and so everyone, I think, in the media space was quite uh, supportive and really interested in this new voice, you know. And I think one of the first people to reach out to me was Jefferson Hack, yeah. um, founded the whole Dazed uh, Media Group. And, you know, he just wrote to me and said, you know, I've been reading your blog. And this was, I think, in 2008, you know, so only wow. a year in, maybe. He said, I just want to meet for dinner. And so people, people would just, you know, were really curious and, you know, very, very supportive. And even now we have very good relationships with other media. I mean, we, I don't see, I don't see it in that kind of old fashioned way as like a competition. You know, yeah. I think we are in a time when different voices um, are important and, and relevant. And so BOF, hopefully is one of those voices, but there's other important voices that we respect as well. And, and I think that's, um, that's how it works. Now, of course, um, we have seen people take more of an interest in, in covering the business side of the industry that may, yeah. maybe they would have um, a decade ago. And we've certainly, I hope, played a role in helping people to see that there's more to the industry just than the yeah. flashy you know, photos and, and champagne. There's, you know, there's this whole industry. And so 
I think it's great if we can if we can help spark those conversations and are part of that conversation too. That just makes the conversation more important. And um, I'm 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 super happy about that. Do you think it would be possible to do something similar today? I'm thinking about that model of, you know, one single person passionately blogging from their sofa and then growing into a kind of a media company. Is I mean, we don't hear about people blogging anymore. Is 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 there an equivalent today that people, if they're listening, can can kind of just start posting or getting started? How would they do it now? There's so many examples, actually. Mm. There's so many journalists right now who are um and not necessarily even trained as journalists, but experts, say, who are leaving their jobs at media companies or venture capital firms or big prestigious publications mm. and starting independent publications. There's this company called The Stratechery, which is like this really interesting blog at the intersection of technology and strategy. And, yeah. you know, he basically runs that on his own. There's um, Rafat Ali, who runs this um, website called Skift, which started very small like BOF and has grown into a team. It covers a travel industry. There's the information, um, which mm. was started by a former Wall Street Journal reporter named Jessica Lesson, and she's grown that into a company. And so yeah. not everyone's turned it into a company, but there are people who are like selling subscriptions to individual newsletters. And then there's other people who've decided there's a bigger opportunity to go after. And I think that the big change is the technology allows us to reach the same audience um, you know, no matter if you're big or small. So it's really about the quality of the content that matters. And if you're a strong individual voice and you have a really interesting perspective, um, people will pay attention. People will value that. And there's so many examples of that, you know, many of which I just um, mentioned. The phrase I hear a lot, I may be getting this wrong, is, is something like narrow but deep, as in have your niche and make it really quite specific and then know better than almost anyone else what's yeah. going on in that niche. Is that, is that the kind of template of those ones you just spoke about? Yeah, I, th I think about it as the global niche. Mm. If I was trying to do BOF 20 years ago and I was based in the UK, the audience mm. I could reach to write the business of fashion in the UK would be really small. I'd have to have a printing press. Um, like just the whole economics of it wouldn't work. But because of everything we have available to us, you know, I was able to reach a global audience from my sofa in London from the first day that I started writing. Yeah. And that just gives, that makes niches on a global level really, really valuable. And if you can be an expert in that space and really know it well and differentiate yourself, then that kind of specialization, that depth that you were talking about mm. can be really valuable. I mean, and to take it one step further to try and anticipate a trend, which is always useful. I remember listening to your conversation with Graydon Carter, where he used the uh, example of, of a wooden desk calendar on his desk. He's just joking. But he's saying, if you manage to give the number one uh, publication about wooden desk calendars, you would, you would find an audience. I mean, do you think it's going to get more and more specific, where as opposed to the business of fashion, it might be, I don't know, the business of... Uh, footwear or the business of baseball caps or something getting super niche in that. Yeah, I mean, you already see that, right? So there's all these streetwear sites like High Snobiety and yeah. Hype Beast, and they are doing business reports now. That's new. That's something that you know they weren't doing before. So um, I think there are opportunities there. I think you, what if you can combine it with a brand that people respect yeah. and know, and uh, a real 
consistent set of values and approaches to the way you think about the industry, mm. um, then that's a little harder to copy. You know, it's a little bit harder to just say, okay, I'm going to do a, a version of that for home. Like someone's done the business of home, for example. Right. Um, you know, other, you know, there's going to be, that stuff's going to happen for sure. But there's some secret sauce in the way we, you know, we try to do things. Yeah, and, of course. you know, I think that's a bit harder to just, you know, copy. So a big moment for you guys, I suppose, came in, I think, 2016, when you went from being a free-for-all model to a kind of subscription, a paywall yeah. version. Yeah. Is that, was that a scary moment, suddenly saying, listen, you might have to pay now to your, to your loyal readers? Uh, it was definitely one of the biggest business decisions we made. Yeah. Um, certainly. I think we always knew that at some point, BOF would charge for content. Uh, you know, all the early employees of the company understood that. I think the question was, when was the right time to do it? And I started pushing for it with our team in early 2016. And, you know, it wasn't an obvious decision because some of the metrics that the team shared with me said, you know, if our conversion rates are at the same level as industry standards, you know, we still haven't scaled our audience enough yet to put a paywall around the content. But I was convinced that our conversion rates would exceed um, the kind of uh, wider industry benchmarks just because I talked to people and I asked them, you know, if they told me they liked BOF, I asked them they would, if they would pay for it. It was like my yeah. way of doing market research. And, you know, pretty much without exception, you know, while maybe some of them were surprised initially saying, okay, would I pay for it? And then they'd come back and they'd say, most of the time, nine times out of 10, they'd say, yeah, of course I'd pay for it. You know, I've integrated it into my daily professional life. So um, I can't live without it. And um, that gave me confidence. And I took that confidence back to our team. And, um, you know, we worked really hard that year. And the result, you know, trying to build not just the kind of content side of it, but the technology side of it, of the entire acquisition funnel for a subscription product uh, as a small company with not a lot of resource. Um, in a high quality way. I mean, it was a big stretch for us, but yeah. that was like one of my favorite years at BOF. It was so rewarding and confidence boosting for our team when those subscriptions started coming through. It was, um, yeah. people were super surprised. How did you settle on a, on a price for the subscription? Well, we obviously looked at the market and, you know, it's not like there weren't other subscriptions available, both within the fashion industry, but also you know, other publications that we respected. We didn't want it to be so out of reach that, um, you know, people would get kind of sticker shock. But at the same time, we knew that there was real value in what we were doing. So we kind mm. of just looked at benchmarks in the, in the space. And, you know, it's one of those things, like there's no science, really, when you're first pricing a product for the very first time, you're just like, how much will people pay? Like, they teach you in business school, you should price things at the willingness to pay. So we had to say, well, how, what's the most that we think we could charge at this stage for the product that we're delivering? Yeah. And that's kind of how we did it. And do you know what proportion of people pay for it out of their own pocket and what proportion use a kind of company account or expense it back to their, their employer? Is there, is there an easy breakdown there? We have a breakdown insofar as we know you know, we have hundreds of companies that have group subscriptions mm -hmm. um, where multiple employees in their organizations have access to BOF, sometimes thousands of employees. That's called our partner program. And so we know, roughly speaking, that 30% of our 
um, subscribers um, come through those company subscriptions, but we see a big opportunity to grow that number. Yeah, absolutely. So you're really getting into the inboxes of proper players in the industry, people who are actually changing things day to day. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, you know, the, the amount of feedback that I get from people who say, it's the first thing I read in the morning, your mm. newsletter in bed, you know, sometimes with their partner. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, people have really made it part of what they do. And it's, you know, it's not just like the big, famous, bold face names. It's people behind the scenes who are equally as influential. Uh, and also people in, you know, educational institutions and investment firms and adjacent industries. Uh, it's quite a broad swath of people. Yeah. With that being said, then, well, I know that you spoke before about your love for analysis and analyzing the industry. At what point when you become such an influential voice, do you stop just analyzing it and start actually molding it, shaping it, changing the course of things? Because you're now, you, you can now take a stance on things and you can influence things. That, that must be something that's on your mind. Yeah, that's the kind of responsibility that comes with having a platform like BOF. And it kind of sneaks up on you. You don't really yeah. realize it. It's hard to explain because when you're so close to it every day and you have been from the very beginning, you will never see it the way other people see it because you, you're part of creating it. Yeah. And you have been since the very beginning. But over time, you begin to realize because you know, of the, the conversations you have with people, the feedback that you get and you see how you know dropping an interesting important question into the conversation on BOF can actually have widespread industry impact and yeah. then you know I think when I realized that I really started to think well what you know you know what can we use this this platform for to help shape this industry that we all you know really love and yeah you know, that was a really interesting transition. And part of that was actually doing our conference voices because the insight wasn't just that we had the influence to shape the fashion industry. It was also the insight that the fashion industry had the influence to shape the world around us because yeah. of the role it plays in culture. And as a media company sitting at the very heart of this influential industry, we realized our impact could be much wider than just fashion. So that's why we created Voices. You know, Voices is this incredible think tank of people from inside and outside fashion who come together and talk about solving problems in the world. And it's just been so amazing to see people, you know, like some of those people I talked about at business conferences who I, when I tell them, yeah. oh, you know, I work in the fashion industry and maybe they're a bit dismissive, you know, people like that who come to BOF Voices and and then they see and they experience it. And then it, and it kind of dawns on them that, wow, you know, this is an industry with so much reach. It's an industry that actually touches me too. Yeah. Um, and by the way, not everyone who works in fashion is, you know, is like some, you know, fumbling PR person, you know, who's interested in serving you champagne. It's, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's an industry and that's not to denigrate PR people, by the way, PR people course, are really yeah. important strategically, but you know, the people have this stereotype type of people going out to fashion parties and drinking champagne. And yeah. actually when you come to something like voices, um, you see that there's these like really smart, talented people who work in this industry 
and they're fascinating and they're they all have like incredible characters and personalities and it's it's like really exciting and i want to be able to showcase that part of the fashion industry to the wider world as well and when you think about that that potential for change what's at the top of your list now august 2020 what what kind of change do you want to see in the industry or maybe in fact in the wider creative world oh wow there's so many things um we're living in such a complicated moment um but i guess you know the first and foremost thing is you know we talk about fashion's role in culture and culture right now is really focused on topics around diversity equity and inclusion and our industry um has a has a role to play in shaping the conversation that you know everyone is having about this right now and i think because of the visibility of fashion because of the number of people that follow the industry and because of you know people look up to people and some of the heroes and leaders in this industry i think there's a lot of work we need to do as an industry to be better you know you know i include um you know my own company and that it's like many organizations in our in our industry have work to do and and i think there's a broader opportunity then to share those examples and learnings um, with with industries around us so um, i'm quite excited about that opportunity i think it's really front of mind at the moment absolutely and how how much as a founder and a boss you are obviously a very visible face for for other people and and people in your own company in all these moments of these very difficult moments and difficult conversations, how much kind of personal responsibility do you feel to change the company, change the, it must be very stressful is what I'm trying to get out. You must have a personal emotional toll on you. Have you found that difficult in the last few months? Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been really, really challenging um, navigating a still relatively small company through, you know, a global health crisis, an economic catastrophe and a social and political justice movement all happening simultaneously in one of the world's most visible industries. Mm. So that's not been easy, but you know, our team is hyper engaged with what we do as a company. And it's not just me who wants to change things. You know, it's our, our company, it's our team. They all have in their own way, um, their own, you know, passion, topics um, that they want to focus on. So we have a variety of groups internally within our company that are addressing topics around gender, race, um, LGBTQ+, um, parents, um, mental health. These are all topics of conversations we're having internally within the company. And it's really internally led by our team who have taken on these responsibilities, not because someone asked them to, but because they, you know, raised their hand and said, this is important to me. And, you know, I want to play a role at furthering our understanding of these issues at BOF. And so uh, it's, it's all of us really. And, uh, you know, I'm personally really proud that our team has risen to the challenge that way. There's, there's still a ton of work to do. Uh, and, you know, we're still very early in our journey, um, but we have the engagement levels and we have the quality of um, people to really to make a difference and and to to make a dent in in some of the things that we want to accomplish and to talk about the economic crisis for a moment one of the obviously the big casualties of that is the high street if only for the fact that it was on the way out anyway but now 
people literally for a few months couldn't go and, and buy clothes. And if they do it now, it's a very different experience. You can't try things on. Is there any hope for the high street or are, you know, are we, are we going to see a lot of brands now folding in the next six months, do you think? I'm massively optimistic about the retail space. We're working on a case study right now on the kind of tapping into the opportunities of physical retail, mm. but it's going to be really different. So it's not retail as we once knew it. It's like retooling retail for this new environment. And I think if you're a physical uh, retailer and you're, you're not thinking about those topics right now, then yeah, you're, you know, those companies will struggle. Yeah, they are struggling, but the ones who are at the kind of forefront of what you know a retail experience can can and should be, yeah, um, you know they're going to find huge opportunity in this crisis. What does that mean when you say the experience changes? Are we thinking of things like you see shops now putting coffee counters in? Is it is it that kind of thing where you make it a more involved experience, not so mercenary and about the transaction? Well, I could do a whole podcast on this topic itself, okay. <laughs> but um, you know, the retail store isn't just for transacting. The yeah. retail store is for service. The retail store is a branding tool. The retail store is a community hub. The retail store can play a lot of different functions, but right now it's mostly tooled for selling stuff to people. And yeah. as we all know, we can buy stuff in lots of different places. So stores have to play more than a transactional role that stores have to play a role in building genuine relationships with their customers and delivering yeah. an experience in the store that they can't get on their sofa. Okay, that's a very good answer. And it hints to lots more. I hope we can do an episode on, on, on how to save the high street. On the other side of things, we've got kind of high tech advances. Um, and I've, always, I've heard about startups trying to allow people to try clothes on digitally and things like that. No one's ever seemed to have the kind of cut through to do it. But is there now an opportunity for things like that, that, that bring a more traditional retail experience into your, into your home? Yeah, I mean, I've been demoing some really cool technology. I don't know if yeah. it's yet at the stage where, um, you know, it's going to get widespread adoption and have like uh, immediate impact on the way, you know, we buy things on, online. But there's some really interesting stuff happening in the world of you know augmented reality, yeah, virtual reality, live streaming. Um, people are using different ways of engaging with customers, and the pandemic has certainly accelerated that. So, Imran, what are you hopeful for for the future? What gives you hope in this difficult time? I don't know. Um, that's a good question. I think that what i talked to our team about at the beginning of this crisis is that it seems sometimes when you're going through these kinds of experiences that there's no end mm. in sight and you know those of us who have a few more years uh, on or a few more candles on our cake uh, know that when these crises happen there is always the other side and you just have to find optimism and hope in knowing that humanity has made it through some incredibly challenging moments before. And while none of us really imagined a year with a global health crisis, an economic crisis, and you know, everything else that's been happening, all working from home, I mean, no one could have, even, like, no one could have predicted it. And no. so someone said to me the other day you know, that if we're in a position of where we can, where we're kind of privileged, as many of us uh, are, you know, at moments like this, we need to also 
um, just recognize that you know there's a lot more uh, opportunity on the other side of this, and um, we just need to manage through it and be grateful that you know we're safe and healthy in this setting. Really, I guess, and um, I think it's underscored uh, for me personally all of the you know relationships in my life and how you know when when push comes to shove and everything's everything seems like it's it's going getting worse and worse and worse yeah. at least we have those you know loved ones in our lives and they might all be far away but you know i feel more connected to to them than ever so um that gives me hope i, Absolutely. I you know, we'll we'll get through it we'll sometime. get through it as you know we have these quick fire questions at the end which maybe give a more rounded version than just imran the ceo and founder so what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't now running business of fashion? Would you be uh, acting? Would you be on the stage is what I want to know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, it remains to be uh, understood whether I even have the talent to do that professionally. <laughs> but um, I, think, I think I might be something in television. Okay. You know, I, there, was this, there was a stage I went through where I wanted to be a TV news broadcaster. So maybe I was... I don't know. I also wanted to be a lot of other things at various points. So I don't know if that means anything to be honest. <laughs> Who knows? I actually have no idea what else I'd be doing. Okay. I, I think that's a good answer in itself. What's your worst habit? Uh, taking on far too many projects, I think. Okay. Yeah. That seems like a common theme amongst successful entrepreneurs, sadly. Too much at once. Uh, what's the most impressive thing you can cook? I've been cooking some pretty mean chicken curries over this lockdown with the oh, assistance of my mother who shared her recipe with me. Um, and I bought an instant pot, which has made it even easier to make it happen. So okay. a mean chicken curry. A mean chicken curry. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds delicious. What are you most proud of so far in your career? Um, probably, you know, we were talking earlier about achievements and um, you know being able to map things out. So sometimes you can't map things out because you yeah. can't you can't even imagine them. So there's this thing in the UK which some of your international listeners may not be familiar with called an MBE or like a it's like an honor from the Queen. And yeah. I managed I managed to get one of those for, for my services in fashion, and you know it was less about the prize it was more about the people i met that day at the ceremony because they were all like hugely accomplished people in the fields of science and olympic sport and all sorts of things and you know it's like i said earlier when you when you're part of building something you don't really you know always and maybe if you're hard on yourself like i am sometimes you don't always understand or have a, like full perspective on what your the impact of the work you do so that really was a nice experience plus my family was there for it too so yeah, it was, it was kind of a full circle moment from that conversation I had with my parents in Kenya that day. That's incredible. MBE, that's something that's very impressive. That's that's one of the best answers we've had yet. What's been your biggest failure? Do you think they will regret to take you down a peg after after all the backpatting? <laughs> I guess I think I could have been bolder at a younger age about knowing what I wanted and not. Um, worrying so much about what other people think and some of the choices I made. Mm. Um, and I don't regret any of the choices I made because they've really shaped me as a person. But I think I've, I've grown confidence 
as I've grown older, which I guess is natural, but for like young people listening out there, I just, sometimes if I was going to talk to my younger self, it'd be like, just don't be scared to take risks, especially yeah. when you're young. You know, I waited quite a long time to kind of get off the beaten path and, and try something really genuinely entrepreneurial. Yeah. If you could learn one new skill, what would that be? Well, I haven't thought about these questions. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess, you know, I'm really, I'm really small. So like, I've never been able to play basketball. That would be kind of cool to like be really tall and you know, <laughs> make that swish sound when you shoot a basketball or do a yeah. slam dunk or something. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. That's brilliant. What was the last piece of advice you, you gave to someone? Um, I spoke to my little cousin the other day and she just had a baby and um, it's her first baby. And, you know, the first few days of motherhood are really hard. I've never experienced it firsthand, obviously, but my sister's yeah. been there. And I just, I've seen my cousin with her, her niece and nephew, which is also my niece and nephew. And I told her she was going to be an amazing mom. She just need to find it within her. You know, she's, uh, she's already got lots of experience. And so I just advised her to just enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry that too was much. Literally two days ago, I think. Brilliant. Well, congratulations to them. Which one phrase would you like to banish from the earth? What makes you angry when people say it at the BOF offices? Well, I don't like hyperbole. Okay. So the word iconic yeah. and the word legendary are too frequently used. I don't mind the words themselves, but I think they should be used only in appropriate circumstances. Okay. I'll watch out for those. If you could stick to one age, what would you like to be? Probably 30. Yeah. Yeah, I liked my 30s. I also like my 40s, but 30s were really great. Good. I've just turned 30, so that gives me hope because I feel like it's all over now. Um, and I'm aware you've got to go now. So what's your personal motto? Hopefully we can end with that. I think it's got to be something about um, not worrying about fitting in. It's cool yeah. to stick out or something like that. I think that's pretty good. It's cool to stick out. Well, thank yeah. you very much for, for coming on the Gentleman's Journal podcast, Imran. We've loved it. Um, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for having me. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.